0: You've just landed on the Ellis Martin Report. Stay with us for the next half hour as we present you with expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. Whatever. I'm the announcer. He's asked to make these disclosures. And I like the sound of my own voice. Don't you? Yeah, you do. Okay, on the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin.
1: In this edition of the Ellis Martin Report, I take you along with me to two investment conferences, the Vancouver Investment Conference and the California Investment Conference in Palm Springs. I'm on the road for you so you can stay cozy and comfortable wherever you are. Okay, I'm on the road for me too so that I can learn about potential investment opportunities as well as interview the sponsors that keep the proverbial lights on at the Ellis Martin Report. This is Ellis Martin, again reporting from the California Investment Conference in Indian Wells, California, not far from Palm Springs, and today I'm with the president of Cream Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA, and on the -the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. Just type in CRMXF. Michael O'Connor, welcome to the Ellis Martin Report.
2: Thank you, Ellis. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Silver in Nayarit, Mexico. Tell us about your company.
2: Okay, thank you. Pre-Minerals was established in 1966, so the company has a long history. has had a variety of projects. The founder of the company, Frank Lang, with his former partner, Dick Hughes, were the original discoverers of the Hanlow Project, which at the time uh, turned into the the then-largest gold-producing mine in Canada almost a million ounces a year. The company has worked on a variety of projects. Some have been moderately successful, some haven't worked out, but that's normal in the exploration business. I joined the company in October 2008. Frank Lang, who at that time was president and CEO, was having a variety of health problems, and the company just needed day-to-day hands-on.
1: Talk to us about the other board members in your company.
2: We restructured the board in June of 2011. So Chris Hebb is now the chairman of the board. Chris is a lawyer. He's always practiced on He's always worked on the corporate side. He's had a long history in corporate turnarounds, restructurings, M&A transactions. Some of his more notable accomplishments, he worked on a team that restructured Kaiser Coal and then led the sale of Kaiser Coal. He worked on a team that restructured Kaiser Steel, which people who are resident in California would know of. He's restructured four private companies in Canada. He's run a real estate investment, commercial real estate investment fund. To run an expansion capital business, uh, he's ideally positioned to come into a, a company like Cream, which really was uh, a reorganization, a refinancing, and a refocusing on a, a very good strategic asset. But tell us about the Nuevo Milenio property. Nuevo Milenio is located in Nayarit State, Mexico. So, for people who aren't familiar with it, it's basically mid-Mexico. It's on the west coast. The project itself is about 20, it's about 30 kilometers from the coast. It is a. Um, epithermal vein system, so... In English, all that means is silver and gold and quartz veins. It's set in a collapse caldera, a, sorry, a historic volcano that uh, either exploded or collapsed on itself. It's an enormous positive for uh, this type of project because it just provides for more ground that's been broken up, fractured, faulted, and that provides more avenues or areas for uh, the mineralization to, uh, to be deposited. So in other words, it increases the probability that you're going to find precious metals and hope to find them at uh, reasonably high grades. So what have you found? We have a um, historic 43 compliant inferred mineral resource. It's 54.6 million ounces silver equivalent, just over 41 million ounces of silver, 271,500 ounces of gold. The average grades are 251 grams per tonne silver and 1.66 grams per tonne gold. That resource study was filed in December of 2008 when silver was $10.28 and gold was $816 and 9 cents. Obviously prices have uh, increased dramatically since then, which would increase the value of the uh, of the current resource. Now, we're not content to rest on that resource. When I joined the company, it carried a fair bit of debt, there was no money, and of course, in October 2008 was the middle of a financial crisis, so it was an enormous challenge for us to, to refinance the company and to focus it on Nueva Millennial, which is by far the company's best asset and is the only asset that we're working on. We completed the process with a bought deal financing with. Pine Tree Asset Management and uh, Sprott Asset Management, the two premier resource investing funds in North America. It was $6 million. The outcome is that Sprott owns 16% of the company, Pine Tree owns 16% of the company. They're very supportive and they want to see this asset developed. So in 2011, we ran a 20,292-meter drill program. 13,500 meters were devoted to infill drilling because we do want to take a significant portion of the current resource and move it up into the indicated category, higher probability. And then we also want to grow the resource, so there was 6,792 meters devoted to exploration drilling. We have commissioned ACA How International, widely respected, well-known international consulting firm, to do our next resource estimate, and we expect that it will be released before the end of the first quarter of 2012.
1: Now, what I find fascinating, we spoke before we were doing this interview, and you informed me that uh, you endured a hostile takeover bid with a previous sponsor of this program, Endeavor Silver. They're a producer in Mexico. They're quite aggressive run by a very competent gentleman. They wanted to have your assets, they wanted to have your company, and it didn't happen. Tell us about that.
2: That's correct. We had conversations with Endeavor Silver's management on and off. Uh, They were informal. They were interested in Nuevo Millenio. And at the time, as I said, Cream was in debt. To the tune of a million eight dollars and no money. They recognized that we were financially challenged. They saw an opportunity. They made a variety of indicative offers to acquire wave Millennial. None of which, the board in the board's opinion, were sufficient. And so consequently we we kept saying no. At the same time, we were talking to a variety of companies about optioning Nuevo Millennial on the basis of a five million dollar cash payment. To earn 50% of the project and then $5 million in expiration uh, expenditures to earn a further 20% for a total of 70%. I think at some point Endeavour found out that we were moving in that direction. We had told them that that was our preferred arrangement and so in early October they launched a hostile takeover bid. And then we fought them until early December of 2011 when they dropped their hostile takeover bid. They simply did not get sufficient shares submitted to their tender offer to come anywhere even close to being able to get 51% of the shares outstanding and control the company. And really what happened there was that between management, directors, friends, families, and supporters, we controlled roughly 40% of the share. So it would have been very difficult for them to get 51%.
1: That leads me to my next question. Endeavor, of course, along with other companies in that part of the world, uh, very serious silver producers, what are your plans for the next few
2: years? The plan for 2012 is to do another 20,000 meters of drilling, do another resource report, and really, it's you know to sum it up, not to get into too much detail, but to give you a really a, a summary of what our intention is, our intention is to build the best asset that we can possibly build through expiration. if along the way a takeover offer is made for the company the shareholders can decide whether or not it is a, a fair offer and whether or not they're willing to accept it and if that does not transpire we'll be in the position where we have an asset that can be advanced to production
1: tell us about that share structure if you don't mind michael
2: we have 153.1 million shares issued outstanding fully diluted it's 215 million shares by the time you exercise the, the warrants and the options. As I said, on a, issued an issued and outstanding basis, Sprout and Pine Tree have 32% of the company. Frank Lang, at this point, would probably have a, just over 12% of the company. Probably another 20% of the company is held by uh, various investment funds, hedge funds, and uh, natural resource funds out of Canada and the United States. So our free float is somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 million shares. And your current share price? It's 26 and a half cents Canadian. Analysts in Canada right now are using say a dollar 35 to a dollar 50 US per ounce of measured, indicated, inferred ounce of silver in the ground. So people can do the math and conclude that we are relatively quite undervalued compared to other silver exploration companies that are similar to cream operating in Mexico and we're really dramatically undervalued relative to uh, the value of the silver in the ground per share of cream. Well, I
1: know a lot of our listeners like to find uh, an asset such as yours under a dollar, under fifty cents, if possible, under thirty cents. You certainly fit into that category where you may not be thrilled with your share price currently. Uh, I sure am, is, and I know many of our listeners may be.
2: You know that's true. I mean, as a management's never happy with the share price. You know, we always management teams always think that the company is worth more than is, is reflected in the share price. And uh, our management team and our directors know that if we are patient, if we work diligently on growing the asset at some point we will receive recognition in the market and we will receive a fair valuation for our asset.
1: And we've certainly seen this in the past with the other companies that have been in your position early on in, in their lifetimes and we know what the potential is. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA and in the U.S. on the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. Thanks very much for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Ellis. It's my pleasure.
1: Again, this is Ellis Martin reporting from the California Investment Conference in Indian Wells, California near Palm Springs. Thanks for listening. You can listen to this segment again in its entirety on our website, ellismartinreport.com.
0: For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com.
1: Apogee Silver is a dynamic Toronto-based junior exploration and development company with a strategic focus on advanced-stage silver, zinc, and lead deposits in world-class mineral districts in South America. Apogee's primary focus is the Pulacayo Paca property, located in southwestern Bolivia. Apogee has been advancing the property since 2006, through a joint venture agreement with Golden Minerals Company, formerly Apex Silver. Apogee is also exploring the Cachinal Silver property located in northern Chile. Apogee has a recent share price of $0.18 and is the paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. I'm Ellis Martin reporting today from the California Investment Conference in beautiful Indian Wells, California, not far from Palm Springs. I'm with Neil Ringdahl, the president, the chairman of Apogee Silver, trading on the venture as... A P E dot V and in the U S as A G E E F. Neil,
3: welcome to the program. Nice to see you here. Thank you very much. Ellis.
1: Let's talk about your new oxide results at the Pulakaya project.
3: Well, we're very excited about it. We've been drilling. We did a drilling program towards the end of last year, about six thousand meters along with some surface sampling and our first results came out earlier this year and a couple of weeks back we had a press release out on that and what we're seeing is significant intersections at mineable grades which is good from my point of view because I'm a mining engineer. Just to highlight a couple of them. 20 meters at 79 grams per ton. There's a 9 meter at 3 ounces per ton. There is 30 meters at 3 ounces per ton. We're very excited about that and it just opens up the door to us to have a look at an open pit option as well as underground which is where we're a little bit further advanced.
1: Now this particular mine is a past producer from 1883 to 1959. Over 600 million ounces came out of this area making it the second largest silver mine in bolivian history what do you hope to do during the next couple of years
3: well we want to get it into production we're on the cusp of that in fact as you know we've started mining uh, a few months back the idea is to get it up to a thousand ton per day of ore from the underground mine by the end of next year that will yield very very significant recoveries because our average grade of the resource is 153 grams per ton five ounces and obviously we'll be mining at an economic cutoff and the average grade above cutoff we expect to be anything between 200 and 300 grams per ton. Those are very, very large numbers.
1: And what's interesting is we've seen some action in the market recently. I think shareholders, uh, new shareholders, are beginning to respond to
3: the activity that you've been doing down in Bolivia. That's right. We've been focusing on a lot of marketing lately because I didn't think the name was that much out there. And there's a lot of interest in our company because we're very cheaply priced stock at the moment.
1: When people think of Bolivia, they don't necessarily understand the political economic situation in that country. You work very closely with the state government and the
3: people in that area. That's right, Ellis. We've gained control of the property through a lease agreement, by which we pay a 4% royalty. 2.5% goes to the state-owned mining company called Comibor, or Compañía Minera del Bolivia. And 1.5% goes to the mining cooperatives of Pulacayo, who are informal miners who've been working the working the uh, deposit over the last few years on an informal basis. And they're very excited about it, because being part of the community, it's great that we can actually, and we're also excited about because the community benefit directly as co-owners of this venture.
1: And to reiterate, this is not an exploration project. This is a mine that's gone into production. Silver is being produced. More silver is going to be produced over a period of
3: time. And the infrastructure has been there for a very long time. That's right. I must just qualify that. We've only just started producing and we're building a stockpile at the moment. But in the near future... We will have secured, completed the agreements with a local mill and we'll be doing some custom toll milling, which has become increasingly attractive given the grades that we're picking up underground. I'm unable to disclose what they are at this stage, apart from that they are attractive. We think that will be very well received by the market. We're beginning to produce revenues and as we grow the mine, growing the, the local workforce, locally trained workforce, they're new to mining and for that reason we're taking it easy in the development of the mine. We don't want to rush it. We don't want to hurt anybody, and we want to do it the right way. So perhaps when we follow up in a couple of weeks, you might have something new to talk about. Absolutely. I believe in three to five years, we'll have a mine that's doing, you know, seven to eight million ounces per year at $10 an ounce, which is, I think, uh, something that will be very attractive.
1: Neil, it's always a pleasure to speak with you this time in person. Thanks for joining me today at the California
3: Investment Conference. Thanks very much, Alice. Great to meet you.
1: I've been speaking with Neil Ringdahl, the president and chairman of Apogee Silver, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE, and in the U.S. as AGEEF. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Matt. Want to make money in resource stocks? Stay informed with Resource World Magazine, covering the latest developments in mining, oil, and gas and alternative energy. Subscribe now
2: to save half off the newsstand price. Simply visit resourceworldmag.com or call 604-484-3800. Or pick up the latest edition at select book and
1: magazine outlets. Resource World Magazine, your insight into the world of resource investment. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper in New South Wales, Australia. Alkane Resources trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ANLKY. That's A-N-L-K-Y. The Alkane story has been a compelling one, reflecting the success of their Dubbo Zirconia project and the international market for zirconium and rare metal resources. Ian, welcome back to the program. It's been a while.
4: Uh, hi, Alice. Yes, it's nice to be talking to you again after a bit of a break.
1: You've been on the road a great deal and you've been finding a warm reception with developments at Dubbo. What do you think is happening?
4: We've actually just completed a two-week roadshow into London, New York, and a, and a bit in Toronto as well, and I was genuinely pleasantly surprised by the reaction that we got. The markets, in, certainly in New York and London, were far more buoyant than I thought they might be, and they were just very receptive to alkane and where Alkane's going, particularly with the Dubbo's Konya project. People start to acknowledge now that we are one of the most advanced sort of rare metal, rare earth projects in the world and, and certainly we'll be up there amongst the top four or five in two or three years time when we're in production. It's very good to get that message across.
1: Well then it's quite helpful to have the double mini pilot production plant. It makes a difference, doesn't it?
4: Absolutely. It certainly does and there's no doubt you know, being able to show product coming off the plant the fact that it's been running now for nearly four years. Uh, we have a number of MOUs and offtake in place. Uh, it's a convincing step forward and uh, it's something that all companies at some stage really have to do they have to demonstrate their process that it works technically and then obviously economically and finally you need product to to take to your customers and uh, that's the only way ultimately these projects will succeed
1: you're not just an exploration project with no infrastructure You're ready to go, basically.
4: Absolutely. With Dubbo, this next nine months, the remainder of this year is dedicated to put all the environmental approvals in place, put all the financing in place, uh, just do the last MOU on the rare earth output, and that's pretty close. I'm hoping we'll have that done by the end of March. So a lot to do in this next sort of nine to 12-month period, but hopefully by March of next year, we're in a position to go, and and we've got uh, state government approval to go. So that would be great. After all, the years of hard work that's gone into the project.
1: With over a year or more to go, how is it that you have at least three? offtake agreements that I'm aware
4: of. Again, because of the demonstration plant, being able to take substantial product to end users and, and talk to the end users about what they need, what the product quality is, how it fits into their requirements, uh, and that really does make the difference. Currently, we have all of our zirconium output committed, uh, all of our niobium output committed. With the rare earth, we've been slightly more circumspect. We've got a model for doing that deal that's a bit different. We certainly don't want to just sell the two concentrates, the light rare earth concentrate, the heavier earth concentrate, we actually want to end up into a partnership with the party to take those two concentrates, to process them, do all the separations. They then get the prior right on the material that they want. But it gives us back separated product that we can also sell to customers that we have that we haven't been able to specifically supply because of just having the two concentrates at this stage. So again, that all comes off the pilot plant and being able to, to get product to people.
1: So tell us why zirconium is much more important for your company than rare earths at the moment.
4: I guess it's our bulk volume uh, material the plant produces all the. the project will produce. So we will produce about 16,000 tonnes a year, as against roughly 3,000 of niobium, 3,000 of light rare earths, and probably 1,100, 1,200 tonnes of heavy rare earths. So it's the bulk volume. It's also about 40% of the revenue of the project, and the good thing about it, it's a very rapidly growing market. A lot of applications are being developed, a lot of really good end-use developments, so it's a very positive business. It probably doesn't attract the attention that the rare earth industry does, but in some ways it's very similar. A lot of the materials are used in advanced applications and in terms of environmentally friendly applications. Uh, so it's got a lot of similarities to RARIS but hasn't quite received the public attention.
1: But yet in the U.S., you're a $13 stock.
4: Yes, well, our market cap has increased a bit over the last three or four weeks. A mixture of market sentiment, the market being a little bit more receptive to uh, projects like ours, but also the fact that that marketing exercise into London and New York particularly, uh, we saw a lot of interest, a lot of interest come out of those two big cities and saying, well, Alcane is a very advanced in its project development and obviously has a very big future and the project economics are very, very substantial. So it's got a big future. So that's really why. The prices has appreciated in the last three or four weeks.
1: How much revenue do you expect to generate once you're in production?
4: At this stage with Dubbo, uh, the anticipated revenue is about 500 million a year, somewhere in that order, and it, it'll vary obviously between US and Australian dollars. But given the exchange rate, we're probably looking at something around 500 million US dollars a year, of which we think that will convert to about 300 million year cash flow or free cash flow. So in that sense it's a very very good project it's almost got an open ended life it's open pitable we can open pit it to open pit mine it for probably 100 years or more than 100 years so that's the big driver for us but we do have other projects our gold project very close to go we're just waiting for the final approval from the state government which we are hoping again to have done by the end of march but that will put us back into gold production say march 2013 and on a 50 000 to 60,000 ounce a year producer that'll again generate about 35 to 40 million a year cash flow out of that business so it'll be on stream before the bigger Dubbo project is but providing a really good backup bread and butter business cash flow for, from that operation as we go forward into the into the bigger operation. Maybe in three years time, four years time, Alcane gets up to being a, a 350 million a year cash flow company with two or three other good projects in the pipeline to come on stream in two and three years after that. The strategy has been very much a cash flow generated, cash flow operations. You know, we're not particularly concerned about which commodity or which product we're in as long as we can make money out of it. And uh, that's really where we see ourselves going. And you know, we've genuinely and publicly stated it's our plan to to uh, pay dividends, and we think we can pay dividends back to the shareholders.
1: Ian, it's been a very exciting few minutes with you. It looks as if there is a very bright future for Alkane Resources and its shareholders. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. I look forward to visiting with you again in the near future.
4: Thanks, Ellis. I appreciate that.
1: I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, the president of Alkane Resources, trading in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. That's A-N-L-K-Y. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.
0: Hey, it's me, cool voice guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice.
1: That's what I call it.
0: That's EllisMartinReport.com.
1: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Drever, the president of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Their flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located northeast of Hermosillo in the prolific state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. The company anticipates that the 2,500 tons per day facility should produce an average of approximately 800,000 ounces of silver and 30,000 ounces of gold per full production year from the open pit heat Leach operation. I'm Ellis Martin. Today, reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, I'm up here with the president of Silvercrest Mines, that's Scott Drever. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL. And in the U.S. on the OTCQX, just type in STVZF. Scott, nice to see you again. Seems like just a few days ago we were in Beverly Hills and now we're in Vancouver. How are you? I'm really well, Ellis, and thanks
5: for having me again.
1: Now, you've had some developments with respect to La Jolla that you alluded to when we spoke last in December. What's been happening in La Jolla?
5: Well, I think in December when we spoke, we were in the midst of doing a resource calculation for La Jolla, our initial resource. We got that work done, and we did the release, at least the press release, on the summary results of that, which showed that we have 109 million ounces of silver equivalents in an inferred category.
1: That's a game-changer I'd like to- to say, maybe you're not saying it, but it's a, definitely a game changer. And uh, what's the next step with regard to La Jolla then?
5: Certainly, I think your words are reasonably well chosen. It's, it's significant for us, and it has the earmarks of being significant in the mining industry. We, of course, tested only a small portion of the potential area with that result of uh, 109 million ounces of silver equivalent. And uh, we are anxious, of course, to uh, look at the remainder of the potential area and so we've embarked on a, um, an 80-hole program. We have one drill rig that has been running there since early December and we have two more drill rigs lined up to go in here shortly.
1: Now, I should review for those that are hearing about your company for the first time that you're a producer in the silver and the gold space with regard to your flagship project, Santa Elena, and that project is financing a lot of your present and future operations, isn't it?
5: Yes, it is. We started the uh, Santa Elena mine last year. We've reached pretty much steady state. It's an open pit heap leach operation that last year on a, on a partial production year we produced, I think it was twenty almost 27,000 ounces of gold and about 430,000 ounces of silver. So that is providing us with a nice stable uh, cash flow platform that will enable us to uh, do the expansion plan that we have on tap at Santa Elena to uh, double the production over the next three years and allow us to do aggressive uh, exploration work on a project like La Jolla.
1: Now you really weren't affected at all, at least not drastically. You saw some share price growth. I believe the value of your stock increased by about 35 to 40% during October, November, uh, pulled back just a little bit in November. Compared to your peers, that's a uh, tremendous growth. What do you think is responsible for that?
5: Well, I think it's uh, just a progression of things and us doing what we said we would do. We said we would be in production uh, on time and on budget, and we were. We said our production would be a certain number of ounces, and we're hitting those targets. So those things are online, and that helps, of course, if you have cash flow that you don't have to go back to the equity markets, then, of course, that helps stabilize your price, I think, as well.
1: Now, you had a couple of research analyst reports that have come out within the last year or so that had your share price value at double what it is now within the next 12 to 16 months, but that valuation was done before this latest report. Do you think that'll change?
5: Yeah, the two uh, analysts that have put out reports on us, one is Stuart McDougall out of Jennings in Toronto, and the other is Nick Campbell out of uh, Canaccord Genuity here in Vancouver. As you say, they've both picked target numbers that are about double our $2.25 share price at the moment, and I would encourage your your listeners to uh, check with those particular uh, companies to To look at those reports. They did include some minor values, I think, for the La Jolla. And as we move forward, of course, those will probably change upwards as we go forward.
1: Now, you're fairly tightly held, too. We don't have 250, 300 million shares out there, do we?
5: Our outstanding and issued right now at the moment is about 87.5 million, I think. Fully diluted, we're just under 100 million, which compared to a lot of companies, as you point out, is not a lot.
1: And over the course of the past few months, I haven't seen a lot of hostile activity either related to your stock.
5: Hostile in that you mean uh, selling off of the stock? No, it it looks like some accumulation going on, and obviously we're bumping around our all-time highs. So if we can establish that base uh, above $2, uh, then that gives us a real nice platform to move uh, upwards from their pending uh, positive results from uh, Santa Elena and La Jolla.
1: Now, one of the analysts I interview is David Morgan, and he has silver hitting $60 an ounce sometime during this year, 2000. 12. Of course, that can't be bad news for your company. It's got to be good news if, in fact, that does happen.
5: Yeah, I know David, and I've interviewed with him a couple of times, and his $60 number isn't outside of my belief system. I think probably a base of, of $29 for silver is is pretty decent. I don't anticipate it being at 60 and staying there. Uh, I would think probably, you know, overall an average of 40, 45, somewhere there. But to hit 60 wouldn't surprise me a bit.
1: Can I ask you what the cost of production per ounce is for Silvercrest?
5: We're still in a bit of a ramp-up mode here. We're almost to steady state where we can put a hard number on those. But our last year numbers are up until the third quarter of last year. We were seeing something in the order of 750 an ounce of uh, silver equivalent. So we've got very, very good margins at Santa Elena.
1: What are you going to be doing during the next 12 months?
5: We've started on, a, on an expansion program, as I mentioned, uh, at Santa Elena. That entails putting in a conventional mill. We're doing underground development. Uh, we started the decline here last week, and that will be going through 2012. We're doing a pre-feasibility study on a satellite deposit, Cruz de Mayo. Of course, we're going to be very aggressive on uh, La Jolla to uh, turn around a second resource estimate after we finish this 80-hole program.
1: Well, Scott, it's always a pleasure to meet with you and speak with you. I've been speaking with the president of Silvercrest Mines, Scott Drever. Again, Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, easily found. Just type in STVZF from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Scott Drever, thanks for joining us today. Find a link to the Silvercrest website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com.
0: The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced staged gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, tanzanianroyalty.com. That's tanzanianroyalty.com.
1: Join me now for a candid interview with America's preeminent expert on precious metals, commodities, and foreign currencies, Jim Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair is the president of sponsor Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the Amex division of the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty focuses primarily on gold assets strategically located in the Lake Victoria Greenstone Belt of Tanzania, one of the most prolific gold-producing regions in the world. The company acquired a 55 percent interest in the advanced stage Buck Reef Gold Mine development project which could see commercial production in 2014. Previously to helming Tanzanian royalty, Mr. Sinclair was the founder of the Sinclair Group of Companies, which offered brokerage services in stocks, bonds, etc. Operating in New York, Chicago, Kansas City, Toronto, London, and Geneva. He was an advisor to Hunt Oil and the Hunt family from 1981 through 1984 for the liquidation of their silver position as a prerequisite for the $1 billion loan arranged by former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. And we're pleased to have him as a weekly guest on the Ellis Martin Report. What do you want to talk about today, Jim?
6: We have had key developments in terms of a form of settlement nearing in the Euro-Greece situation. That has impact on to what is its mechanism, and what will that mechanism mean to the general markets as well as equities and, uh, and the gold market. The announcement by the Chinese of their interest in being part of a euro plan, and that demonstrating the IMF's both desire and intention to uh, bring in outside funds in an ongoing supply of liquidity. We also have uh, a great deal of opinions being given on the dollar versus the euro, and uh, and the implications of, of some form of a resolution, even if that resolution eventually includes Greece leaving the European Union. So there are many subjects that we we could approach. Uh, I leave it to yourself, Ellis.
1: If Greece does leave the European Union, it's something that uh, perhaps the euro can withstand.
6: You know, let's look at it, and the listeners think about it. What would the euro be without Greece? Would it would it be weaker or stronger? And there really is an argument that all other things being even—I mean, that's a big mouthful—but all other things being even, that the euro would in fact be stronger without Greece because of the nature of the Greek population. I mean, when the Department of Finance goes on strike, that's got to tell you something. (laughs) It's not an easy problem to fix. So there is a strong possibility that general opinion, once again, has it backwards. Because general opinion would say, oh, my goodness, uh, if there's a a haircut down to 70%, maybe no default, and Greece voluntarily and in an orderly way uh, exits the euro, Well, that's not so good because, look, it's taking away from from what the currency unit is and uh, might start others thinking the same way. I think the real answer to that is that if today Greece was not part of the euro and liquidity had been injected into the system to overcome the impact of the final resolve of what Greek debt is worth, be that 30 percent or zero, the euro would be stronger, not weaker. And, again, that's something that should be given good consideration. But the problem goes beyond Greece. I mean, if again, I said, if everything remained uh, equal. Because it's very hard for, I think, any of us to accept that one nation in a union would get uh, treatment as Greece has and that uh, more strict requirements would be executed in, let's say, Spain, uh, Portugal, uh, Italy, et cetera. So we're going to have a, a continuing drama. But I think that the near-term resolve of that drama is a combination of liquidity, which is good for the general equities market, and also good for gold. We've been on that subject over the last couple of weeks, and it seems to be holding up to a degree. I mean, right now you have the dollar, as we said, was in an oversold condition, but uh, that there was significant supply between 80 and 82 on the USDX. And the relationship generally would be, well, if the dollar is going to firm, then, then gold should weaken. I think we're going to look at that in degrees. I think there might be less of a degree of that relationship rather than more. And I think that's really being demonstrated now, even though gold is technically negative on the short term. And the dollar is, has not yet really established a confirmed positive uh, breakout from the uh, recent decline. I think that the the relationship is gonna be a little less uh superglued than it was before. So generally I don't join in those that are very concerned about the equities market except for a short reaction, general equities. And as far as gold is concerned, uh I think the real range will be seventeen hundred to twenty one eleven, but right now it's sixteen fifty to seventeen sixty four, where the bull camp and the bear camp
1: stand. Can we state, or will you state, that the rise in gold over the last two years has been uh, tied into this uh, the uncertainty with the euro and the dollar in Greece and Spain and Portugal, or is there some supply and demand factor figured into that? You know, there is
6: a given supply and demand factor, and the um, amount of gold being produced has been on a steady decline, and South Africa has its own unique problems that affect supply. Jewelry demand deals with level of economic activity, but, you know, are we Are we really talking about gold as a commodity, or are we talking about it as a currency? I've never held the opinion that gold is a commodity. I've always seen it as a currency, of almost as a currency of the people or a currency of last resort. And the demand that has existed for gold has a tremendous amount to do with every criteria you just mentioned, because that's what's created the engine of liquidity, the collapse of Lehman was the uh, advent of the inability to cure the -the over-the-counter derivative problem. Prior to the collapse of Lehman, the -the over-the-counter derivative problem could have been cured the same way that the savings and loan collapse was handled. All of those derivatives netted out to zero, and you could have had bad derivative bank. But once Lehman broke, the chain broke, and they no longer netted out to zero. Bankruptcy existed. That was the beginning of the massive injections of liquidity. But each each criteria that you mentioned, is a criteria which has resulted in debt monetization nationally and globally. And debt monetization nationally and globally is the unique nature of the present environment we're in. The Federal Reserve is, in fact, and has functioned and is functioning today as the lender of last resort to the entire Western world finances. Most recently, in December, the Fed announced a 500000000000 billion-plus swap line. Then, of course, we had the IMF come on with their rescue package to be built and expanded. And uh, two days ago, we had confirmation from China that they were positively interested in joining the IMF in funding of that rescue package. So you really have a global debt monetization. It guarantees a level of liquidity, and with a higher probabilities of an increasing level of liquidity. And liquidity is what drives our markets. Liquidity drives the market for IBM just as much as it drives the market for gold bullion. So you have a rather strange set of circumstances where what's being done benefits what used to be two different camps, but in truth, really now is one.
1: Well, if general equities are going to grow in value, then is gold and gold stocks. Is that growing in value also because it seems like something that might be profitable to invest in, or are we st- still factoring in uh, fiat currency devaluation?
6: Let's let's discuss the two markets. I and mean, The general equities market has great support from firms and institutions. Uh, investment funds and hedge funds, that have naturally dealt in. That really doesn't stop. When liquidity finds its way into international investment banks, it's invested by these institutions in the items that they're most familiar with. Up to now, the liquidity has been extremely positive for gold itself, but not necessarily for gold shares. There's been a school out there that looks only at increasing expenses for mining and extracting gold, and not necessarily the um, impact that higher prices of gold have, especially on low-grade gold mines. There's some realization that needs to catch up in the gold shares, that is in gold and is in the equity. So you mentioned three things. Right now, the gold shares are non-performing, yet the gold price continues to rise. And that's an equation that is illogical. In the 1970s, uh, the gold stocks were very late in coming on. In fact, their best performance was, was after the top in gold in 1980. But then there, were no, there wasn't a short interest in these items. There wasn't hedge funds dealing as they have been primarily short of the stock short of the gold stocks in significant ways again based on, uh, on an improper interpretation of the equation of rising costs uh... without taking into consideration the impact of rising revenues i think this time when the gold shares come on it will be an event that will be different than the 1979-1980 event because you have the short interest that we'll need to cover. So it won't be hard to mistake when you see it. But right now, the gold and general equities are getting the major benefit of liquidity.
1: I ask you this almost every interview, but based on what you just said and to those that are listening for the very first time to this program and us and you, and I find it hard to believe that there's anybody left that hasn't listened to us, but from the point of profiting in the market, specifically gold stocks, what Uh, do we look for now?
6: Value buys. In other words, the way you take a look for a value buy in a gold stock isn't too much different than the way you'd evaluate the. You know your house. You look at your house. You know what you got in it, and you, and you might take a price uh, off the top of your head. But that price is just your price. It really doesn't mean anything. You need in a uh, in the real estate market to know what sales have been made in your area, and then you need to know what sale prices have occurred for homes or property that is same and similar to yours to be able to get to get a real price, a market price, not some figment of your imagination. It's not that much different in the gold shares. A solid way of looking is taking a look at the last transactions that have existed in acquisition. That's your wholesale market. And generally those transactions equate to a certain amount of money per ounce paid for the company in the various categories of resources and reserves they've having, from drill proven to simply indicated. Then you take a look at, at the company you're considering to invest in, and you use the same price and arithmetic to determine the, what the value of your company would be in a similar transaction. It's a good starting point. So what I think you see happening now is that uh, certain professional money is looking at, looking at uh, gold, shares, uh, gold share investments, not necessarily on the appreciation of gold, but the price of the last transactions of that type of asset. So that's the kind of thing that begins to give you a bottom when you have uh, other than speculative interest uh, come into a situation. And, you know, investment interest today in, in, in the world we live in, It's you know, I mean, how, how long do people hold positions? The retail for everything has become speculative funds, and their horizon of opportunity is today and tomorrow, very short, very short focus. So. I think I believe we'll see a change based on value buying. I think that we've defined how you determine that. It's not that hard. And then uh, I do think the timing is uh, not too far off because you begin to see a change in any market. Let's go to a market for widget-making companies. Everybody doesn't like widgets, and they're short the widget-making companies. But then all of a sudden, the widget-makers get down to a point where their assets and their cash and their sales you know, start to make sense and along comes the value buyer who's primarily alongside and begins to give the short a little bit of competition. And so coming off the recent lows, you'd look for, for modest but distinct uptrends with increasing volume as indicative of new company, meaning new people, new investors, into a situation based on value. And I think there's many value buys around right now, and I think you'll start to see that type of performance as a result of it.
1: So basically, we're talking about companies in areas where transactions have happened and their share price, their market cap is considerably less than their neighbors, and they have good management, interesting properties, and these sorts of transactions are almost, they exist devoid of whatever's happening with the price of gold right now. And
6: bear in mind that an ounce of gold anywhere is an ounce of gold everywhere. There was a time where we always thought that an ounce of gold would be worth more money in Nevada than it might be in Europe. Than it might be in Africa. Well, this global economy has had an impact on that. So much so that the permitting risks are so high in British Columbia, for instance, that if you wanted to make an argument, you might make an argument that an ounce of gold was really worth less than an ounce of gold. Now, I don't agree with that. An ounce of gold anywhere is the same as an ounce of gold everywhere. So when you look at the comparisons, you're not looking at your neighbor you're looking at the category of resources and reserves mineable that they had. So the only addition to what you said that I would say is, when you're making this comparison, it doesn't have to be between a mine in in, uh, Ontario and one two miles away.
1: So we're really looking uh, also at the cost of producing an ounce of gold.
6: Absolutely. And the cost of producing an ounce of gold is heavily dependent on what type of gold you're mining. Yes, the costs have risen. There's been significant inflation because there's been significant expansion in the mining area, and also because during the period of the popularity of gold derivatives, uh, gold producing companies were able to open projects that were not necessarily economic at the time. So yes, the cost of production is is a factor, but it factors into what companies will pay each other for gold in the ground in the various categories. So it's not another new subject. The price of gold, that has been... Paid yesterday between, uh, El Dorado and, and Euro gold is a, a indicative factor that takes into consideration the cost of, uh, the cost of extraction of that type of gold from that area. When I suggest to you that the way to look at it is the value of recent transactions, recent transactions take, in, take into consideration costs as well as revenue.
1: Well, it's always an education having these conversations with you, Jim. I've learned quite a bit just in the last few weeks. Let's talk about JS Mindset and the education you provide for the general public.
6: Well, I've I've done a couple of... uh, I would say if if you were to take the interview that we did introducing to the public uh, the International Swaps and Derivative Association and how extremely important uh, that group is and their committees are, suggesting they have more power... Uh, actually than any central bank on earth. And the last three special emails I sent out, uh, I, I write every day, uh, but when something really special comes up that I want to call people's attention to, then I have a, I have a, a, a service for free where people tell me to put them on their email list. And then something very important gets brought to their attention. I'm going to suggest to you that from your interview and the last three, three items that we've done, and any interviews since, such as now, that that is an entire chapter that I think could constitute uh, a very important uh, textbook that uh, will give an understanding to the reader or to the listener who wants to know really why things are happening and what is the significance in terms of, I' us say, power uh, of an event as it will affect markets. What we use is we use markets as a blackboard. And I'm a a little bit of a frustrated professor. And I enjoy doing it, and I enjoy talking about it. And I enjoy the fact that so far the readers of the site have done extremely well. And I only pray that that I'll be able to continue to to render that service uh, through these very difficult, unusual, and unique markets we're going through. There's no charge for it.
1: Well, that's a wonderful service that uh, you're providing to the investing public uh, and those that uh, follow world news. Uh, speaking of which, you referenced the ISDA interview that we did uh, about two weeks ago. That was seems to be just the beginning. That uh, interview's uh, getting some additional legs right now. That I was. I, I firmly
6: believe that should be repeated. Um, I think that plus the three special emails I sent out, plus any interviews to this point, including this that we're doing now, are part of one singular package. That can be defined in in a period of time. And it's rare that within a period of about six or seven days, there were three special emails sent out. But, you know, there are productive times in your life. Uh, I don't think we can continue at that pace because there's no need to. We've covered all of the pertinent but unusual, not discussed in Main Street media, PowerPoints that will have a tremendous effect uh, not only on our investment life, but our standard of living and uh, what our future looks like. These are not just discussions of what to do in a market and today, tomorrow, the next day. We're really trying to define what major changes are taking place internationally that have political, economic, and social impact, really impact on the family. So I really think that that, that interview uh, is one that, uh, you know, is worthwhile listening to again. I enjoy listening to it. Uh, not to hear my voice, but to go over the points, to be self-critical, and to continue. The analysis of, of that grouping of getting-togethers really is one, with its, its, uh, the initiative, the, its birth taking place in our last conversations.
4: Well,
1: there's a little bit of a fear factor that's built in due to a lack of knowledge and or perhaps uh, just a fear factor in general. I've got to say when I was going through that interview that we did a couple of weeks ago uh, right after the 31st or on the 31st, the ISDA interview, there was a Los Angeles broadcast journalist that was listening to it as I was getting ready to post it and she turned to me and she said, and she just listened a few minutes in, should I be moving my money out of the bank right now?
6: well the important thing to understand is there is a group of people who will determine whether or not a sovereign default occurred very few people have asked you know who's the referee here i mean if you don't pay is not that a default the answer is no that is not necessarily a default second thing we have to take into consideration and she did too is that obviously these this group of people coming from uh, or having their basis in the in the companies which actually manufacture these things Uh, That is, the credit default swaps the insurance that's being granted against debt. But if the group is made up of the representatives of the insurance companies, it's unlikely that they're going to declare it a default and uh, cause themselves immediate significant uh, financial problems. However, that really is the kick of the can that is so big that it may be the kick of the can that goes down and hits a dead-end sign. It has implications in liquidity. It has implications, and really, how far can you go declaring a non-default? If 70% of a debt vaporizes, it's really hard with a straight face to say that that didn't default, but that's what you can expect. What are you going to do next time? The great expectation of kicking a can is there's not going to be a next time. The reality is that if you don't fix the problem, kicking the can guarantees you a next time. So uh, the answer is, should we take our money out of the bank? The proper answer is probably no, but don't forget about it (laughs) and give it good consideration over time, because there will come a point when the answer is absolutely yes.
1: So the banks can continue to declare that or not declare a default. They can go into uh, default amongst themselves, and the line that will rear its head at some point is that there will be no money available to loan anybody.
6: Believability is one thing. That's people's faith in a system. That's confidence. But the point is, right, if you take out of the Greek debt now, from it's haircut to 50, now down to 30, you're removing from the banking system in evaluating that asset, that percentage of the debt, in order to keep the bank viable, making it able to pass a stress test, let's say, or simply uh, being able to demonstrate a balance sheet which balances, you have to replace that money, and that's where the liquidity goes. That's also why the liquidity has really not started a major economic uh, recovery, because of the bank's unwillingness or inability to use that liquidity to make general loans on. So the liquidity goes into the banks and sort of dies there, that it's either used just for making a guaranteed return in the national debt market or simply replaces something that has been erased, and that's minus one plus one equals zero. So that's why uh, all of this tremendous liquidity, all the 17 trillion plus dollars that have gone in since 2008 to the Western world financial system, has not provided, at this point in time, significant recoveries in real estate and employment. It's sort of just holding things together. It's really not making it better. But it's the nature of follow the money. I mean, be the detective. The money goes in. And if it goes in to replace something that's out, it's minus one plus one equals zero. Or the other side, why in the world should uh, the your local bank uh, lend money to you to buy a house or to fund uh, a small business if they can just go out and buy treasury bills and make a guaranteed return?
1: So we're on our own. We're on our own. Main Street and Wall Street
6: are two distinctly different centers.
1: And we're not joined at the hip, necessarily. We,
6: we're not joined at the hip, as we were in the great bull markets of the 1950s and 1960s.
1: Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. We've covered a lot of ground today, and uh, I hope to uh, eventually assemble an encyclopedia of your knowledge based on the interviews.
6: I really think we have something here that is solid and real and that needs to be understood. And I've done my best to explain it. We'll keep working on it. But it's not simply for making a buck. It's for what is our grandchildren's life going to
1: look like. Thank you, Jim you're quite welcome. I've been talking with Jim Sinclair, president of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, EllisMartinReport.com. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis
0: Martin Report. (laughs) Yeah, you did. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves, thinking you might actually be interested. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. For Ellis Martin, this is your announcer, Cool Voice Guy. Yeah.